Hey there, welcome to night school. Saturday night school here. And what's on my mind right now is how I don't have nearly enough drama in my life. And I would actually like to live a life where there's a little bit more. I would like my life to be more dramatic. I would like more drama in my life. And I say that, I use that word drama in the the worst possible use of that word that it comes in. You know, the way that we hear that word today. I mean it in exactly that way. And I know this sounds like I'm being sarcastic. I know this, what this sounds like, you know, just dawned on me that what this sounds like is somebody who actually experiences a lot of drama in their life saying sarcastically, oh, I could sure use more drama. I could sure use more drama. Um... You know, I know this sounds that way, but it's really, I mean, I, I, I have zero drama in my life. I have zero, I, you know, it's been a long time since I've had any drama. You know, of course, there are major life events that transcend drama, but it's been a while since I've had what people call drama. Do I call it that? No. But that's what people, that's the word people use. They like that word. But I do have to say, this is a dramatic show. You know, while I may not live a dramatic life, I may not have much drama in my life, I consider this a very dramatic show. I'd say this show is filled with drama. It's a high drama show. And I want it that way. I want, I like this show. I've gotten this show just to the perfect place. You know, it's been tenderized just perfectly. It's got just the right amount of drama. And the right amount is a high amount. That's what we say. That's what we say around here is the right amount is the high amount. Amount of what? Amount of drama. Yeah, the show is heavy and I like to lay it on thick. And if if you don't feel that there's enough, let me know because I'm always willing to raise the volume. I'm always willing to raise the volume on the, on the drama for this show because I, I do want it to feel, I want this to be a dramatic experience. I want this to be, you know, not theatric, but I want it to be dramatic. Low theatric. You know, of course, people talk about their lives being low drama. My life is low. I'm just a low drama chick. I'm just a low drama dude. I'm a low drama dude. It, but, uh, you know, of course, I mean, it, everybody knows what that means. Everybody knows that that just to even mention like any mention of drama out of context, like anybody who says that word voluntarily to d- talk about themselves, whether it has a prefix of low drama or high drama, just the, the fact that somebody would even say that in an introduction about themselves tells you everything you need to know. And, and I mean, and if you don't already know that, if what I'm saying to you right now is groundbreaking, that people who advertise themselves as low drama are often the people who just cultivate drama if you're not aware of that you got a lot of work to do maybe uh you know your iq might be so low that you don't even know who i am and who i'm talking to right now if you don't know that someone who advertises themselves as low drama is actually the inverse of that you got a lot of work to do 
And maybe God didn't give you the right tools to do that work. So turn this show off. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know what got me into this. I mean, it's embarrassing to even say the word drama. The- that's why we say theatric. I'm just a chick who's low on theatrics. You won't get much theatrical behavior from me. No, but I do want to be more dramatic in how I interact with people, strangers, you know, because you don't want to burden the people you know. The nice thing about being comfortable with somebody, the nice thing about having friends, family, people who you feel comfortable around is that you can drop the performance or just perform when, you know, you really when it's fun, when you're having fun. Uh, but you can drop the most of the performance you have to do the rest of the time. Because, I mean, pay attention to that. Pay attention to your closest friends, and you'll find that there isn't much theatric flair to the way they talk when they talk to you. Like I don't like this, like I said, this is a high drama show. I don't talk to anybody I know the way I talk on here. I would want them to knock my eyes out of the sockets if I started talking to them like this with this sort of cadence and delivery, which is hopefully not too bad. You know, I I don't consider this totally artificial, but still to talk to somebody like this would not be acceptable to me. Uh, But, but just like I was saying, pay attention when you're talking to the people you care about or that you're most comfortable with, pay attention and, and don't do it too much. Just maybe do this once. You don't want to turn into a scientist You don't want to turn the whole world into your lab. Uh, But just notice the inflection of your voice, and you'll probably find that you're uh, you're not trying to do anything. Like, you're not trying to modify or modulate your voice. You're not trying to modify or modulate your voice. You're, you're, You're not. You're not thinking about it at all. You're just, you're, you're communicating just straight. And so that's just an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing that we do, where when we are comfortable, our voice just kind of falls into its natural area. Whereas, I mean, I was talking recently about your voice getting higher when you talk to, say, pets or children or your parents versus getting lower when you're in some sort of competitive environment with other men when you're talking to a girl. So your voice gets lower in certain circumstances, you know, and it just and and not just lower or higher, but it adapts in other ways. You mirror other people's speech. You tend to talk a certain way when you're talking to a certain person, and part of that's based on the way they talk because you're mirroring them, but you're also talking in a different way yourself because you have a different audience. So that happens. But when you're around somebody that you're truly comfortable with, a lot of that stuff drops away. And, uh, you know, I try to be that way myself in most of my interactions, honestly. But I think I could be a little more dramatic. And I mean dramatic. And you you think about, you see like footage of people before documentaries were an established category. You know, of course, documentaries, excuse me, Uh, Of course, documentaries have always existed 
always existed. Did you know there were documentaries 3,000 years ago? This guy School Night told me that there were documentaries 4,000 years ago. No, but, you know, there's as long as there have been cameras, as long as there's been video film production, you know, of course, there have been documentaries, and the news, in theory, should just be a documentary with descriptive narration. That's what the news should be. It's not what we get. Again, if that's news to you, if that, what I just said is news to you, again, you know, maybe there's a a, a larger issue at play. Um, But uh, maybe a larger issue in your head. Um, But uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm being mean. Maybe this is the one-time bullying in action. Last episode was about being a one-time bully bullying somebody one time, being really mean to them once, then never doing it again, with no explanation. You know, if I didn't add that in uh, to that episode, uh, the important part, too, is to have no explanation, no reason. Oh, he was mad at me because this, oh, he was mad at me because he got an F on his geometry test, and uh, his girlfriend uh, told him she's not really sure if she wants to go to the same college as him, and that's why he told me fuck you out of nowhere and stepped on my my toes. Uh, you know, there's there can't be an explanation like that. Because bullying isn't fighting. Bullying isn't an argument. You know, bullying, it has to be inexplicable. A nice good old inexplicable bully, you know. The inexplicable bully. No, it has to be inexplicable. And um, with uh, with being dramatic, though, um, I mean, it's kind of like that, you know, where I, I feel like just uh, raising things up or talking about documentaries where like people didn't know how you were supposed to act in a documentary. So they were just going about their lives. And there's something about early documentaries from, say, late 70s, early, mid 80s, even up to the early 90s, because I feel like documentaries were an entirely different thing. They weren't really they weren't something that you necessarily indulged in in the way that you have in the last 15 or 20 years. Whereas uh, documentaries, were, they were just something you sort of incidentally saw and that intrigued you. But over the last 15, 20 years, we've seen where there's you meet girls who are like, I like documentaries. I'm a documentary girl. You know, you, you meet guys like that, like me. I prefer documentaries over movies. You know, I prefer I, I watch way more documentaries than I do actual movies. Uh, and it's just how I am. I'm a documentary boy. But I also, there's something about the direction documentaries have gone where there's there's something artificial in most of them. And it's not, this isn't some reality TV criticism, which is just so low-hanging. You know, people use that phrase, low-hanging fruit, and I kind of had started to use that. And I was, I've been trying to come up with another way of saying that. And it's, it's a low-hanging pair of balls that you're kicking, you know, and it feels cheap. It feels easy. I mean, it's like I was saying about the news. You know, it's like, uh, you know, what I was saying about. It's like a, 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 any number of things that I talk about on here. 
you know, sometimes I feel like, oh, it's, it's, that's a low hanging pinata. That's a little too obvious. That's a little too easy to point that out. Or recently I was talking about it with the idea that, oh, politicians are liars. Where pointing that out is, is just so easy and obvious and something you hopefully learn fairly young that continuing to point it out feels like I'm swinging at a, a giant low-hanging pinata, which is similar to a dangling ball sack. Balls, ball sack. And I have the world's largest baseball bat, and I'm swinging at that too. And I'm kicking it. You swing at the pinata, kick the balls. That's how things work. No, but uh, I feel when I... Uh, pointing out certain things just feels a little too obvious. And I don't think it's condescending to say it, to say that some things are a little too obvious. Where like if you've made it this far in your life and certain things are either news to you or just difficult truths to stomach... I can't help you. Um, but uh, just to get back to documentaries, you know, what I, the reason I was talking about the news and all that, too, is n- the news, in theory, should be a documentary every night. It should be an utterly gripping, fascinating documentary with only the necessities shared, only the descriptive necessities shared with you. I would be hungry for the news every night. And I think it would be quite varied. I think you'd hear a lot. And this isn't some sort of Rob Brezhny, you know, oh, it'd be better if the news, what if they told you good news on the news? Imagine, you know, I, I totally understand that idea. And I'm glad people like him point that out so that I don't have to. Because uh, we would live in an entirely different world if you pointed out only good stories. But even though, you know, I've become a more positive person in that, you know, I'm, I like to hear more positive stories, for example. I'm more interested in good things that, that happen than I've ever been in my life. But even then, I don't want to, and I love kittens, but even then, I don't even care about a story about a kitten getting saved from a tree by firefighters. Like, I'm glad that happened. I'm glad that this kitten who got stuck in a tree got rescued by firefighters and the little girl was crying with tears of happiness that her cat was returned to her. You know, I love that that happened, but do I want to read about it? No. Do I care? No. So it's, it's funny to me when people like Rob Bresney say, you know, oh, like, you know, imagine the Pronoia News Network where it's all positive news. You know, it's all happy news. It's like, yeah, you know, we I get it. You know, I get why positive sensory input, especially about the world around you, is not only important, but it would be fascinating if we structured society around that instead of stories that are paranoid and scary. But the reality is, it's just not interesting to watch something that's only about good news But I think we could do better than just the paranoid mess that the news is and just provide us with documentaries, provide us with very little commentary. If they can show something and that can properly explain it, show it. Show us the video. Instead of showing us five seconds of the video, 
so that you can spend the next five minutes with pundits talking about it. How about you show the whole video and have the pundits talking for five seconds? Can't even get a word out. That's the way I like it. Journalists not not even being able to get a word out. Sounds good to me. (laughs) No, but just make it minimal. Just, you know, if you can show it through a video, if you can show it through news footage, that is preferable. Let you be the judge. Let the viewer be the judge. And that even feels like it's the slogan of a news network. There probably is a news network. You be the judge. Welcome to School Night News Network. You be the judge. Oh, you thought this was a news network? This is a documentary, man. Yeah, I'm a cameraman for the School Night News Network. Ask me, you know, please feel free to interview me. What's it like to to be a documentarian? This isn't going anywhere funny. <laughs> this isn't going anywhere funny. Uh, but no, I could, you know, there'd be an appeal to that. Uh, you know, but that's not the world we live in. You know, it's, we don't structure things that way. And I think just simply making things interesting is always enough. Because I don't like the idea of overcompensating for bad news by being like, we only share good news. We're going to ignore all the bad news and only share the good news. I don't support that at all. I just think make it interesting. Make it varied. Good, bad, and everything in between. Uh, You know, just, you know, the news should be a documentary. And just to get back to the earlier thought about early documentaries, pay attention to that too. In (laughs) In the same way that you're going to pay attention to your own voice or your friend's voice next time you talk to them, if you watch older documentaries, pay attention to people's behavior. Because, again, it's not a reality show thing. You know, yeah, oh, re- reality shows are fake. That was another one of those things that I'm talking about. The the low-hanging ball sack that's way too easy to kick is, quote-unquote, reality television. Quote-unquote, oh, you mean, uh, quote, quote, uh, reality television? Quote-unquote, reality you know, that's another one. It's like, did you know that reality television isn't really reality? Did you know that politicians are liars? Did you know that the news is, is a highly, it's a highly biased portrayal of the events of the day? Did you know that it's easiest to kick the lowest hanging ball sack? Because when you kick the lowest hanging ball sack, you're kicking the ball sack of an old man. It's not even like the rest of his body is in great shape and makes it difficult for you to kick. Like, it'd be one thing if you're trying to kick this this low-hanging ball sack and uh, the person's like a, a triathlon runner. You know, they're in great shape, so they can at least, like, get out of your way. But when you kick a low-hanging ball sack, it's the ball sack that belongs to an old man and it's like not even a moving target. Not even a moving target when you kick that, you know, kick at that guy. It's one of those crude things where it's like there's nothing particularly offensive about that. You know, there's nothing particularly uh, like 
I feel like everybody's talking about, I mean, you see ball sacks on trucks for the last 15 years, you know, however long that's been around. I think I saw it 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you know, truck nuts as they call them. Uh, and, uh, but you never thought you'd hear me say truck nuts on here. Maybe you did. But, uh, you know, with truck nuts, with just everything, I mean, it's just we live in a a ball-heavy world. So I don't think it's, you know, that offensive or anything. But, you know, it does, I guess it's low-brow. Just like it's low-hanging, it's low-brow to talk about ball sacks. Sometimes. Sometimes it's high-brow. Sometimes it's it's very dramatic. Because that's one of those things that you can always get dramatic about. Get dramatic about your body. Get dramatic about what you were born with. Um, but yeah, going back to early documentaries, just f- to finally get back there, you'll notice that they act a little bit different. You know, I'm not going to say it's substantial, but you'll notice that they just carry themselves a little bit differently. You'd think they would be more paralyzed. Like the one I always recommend is 17. It's an old documentary. I want to say from 1980, maybe 83, somewhere in the early eighties. And, uh, it's, you know, it's dark, like in terms of just the film footage, you know, the way that it was produced, it's kind of gritty. And it was part of a, a documentary series called Middletown. And I know I've recommended it on here before. But 17 is particularly great because it's about these girls who are in interracial relationships in the Midwest. I think it's in Ohio. And uh, they really don't seem to know how you're supposed to act in front of a film crew. Or a cameraman, a newsman. Uh, you, you know, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, really, uh, every every uh, cameraman should, in theory, be called a newsman. Everybody who's filming anything is capturing the news, as far as I'm concerned. Everything is the news. That's another one of the school night news network slogans. It's you be the judge, and everything's the news. I like that one more. I think. You Be the Judge might actually be a real news station's slogan. I feel like I've seen that before. It'd be great to start my own news network and use a slogan that another news network already has. (laughs) That's our slogan. My life boils down to me starting a news network and I steal a slogan, unintentionally steal a slogan, and the big battle of my life is some courtroom drama you know, at war with another news network over a slogan, you be the judge. Everything's the news. That's just something that I could carry with me everywhere. I don't even need to start a news network to make that my slogan. Everything's the news. Hey, hey, Dad, did you watch the news last night? Everything's the news, kid. So it was particularly loud. <laughs> That's how you have to talk to your kid, though. If your son ever comes up to you and asks you if you watched the news, you gotta fight. You gotta be a one-time bully in that situation. Everything's the news. Everything's the news. Everything you see is the news. Next time you think that you need to watch a certain channel, read a certain newspaper, go to a certain website in order to get the news, remember that the real news is viewed through your eyes. 
which is yet another slogan. We're just coming up with slogans left and right. The real news is everything that you view through your eyes. You know, because, I mean, uh, that's that's how it should be. I mean, uh, the news should be like watching the Nature Channel. The news should be like classic Discovery Channel, where there's some narration... But there's, you know, what you're seeing is heavily represented because we live in a time where we have that footage. It's not that we don't have the footage. I could see if if we lived in a certain time period where we didn't have the video footage. I could easily understand why the news would have just more people talking. I can understand why the anchors would talk more, why the pundits would talk more. But we live in a time where we have the footage. So let's see the footage with a you know some minimal narration. We don't even need to see the people. Think about how amazing that would be if we never saw the newscasters. Think about how great it would be if we never saw journalists. You know, and this isn't some coded message for like let's kill all the journalists, let's kill all the news anchors. No, we just don't need to see them. Why do we need to see them as much as we do? Let's hear, let's, let's have a very minimal narration of the news, the nightly news documentary. And we don't need to see them. Why do we need to see them to know the news? Why do we need to know who's telling us? Is it a trust thing? Because there's some of the most untrustworthy people out there. You know, I mean, they're, they're a step above mannequins. But yet we need to see them, and mainly them, telling us things. They should be narrators. They should be like voice actors. We never see them. And uh, we wouldn't want to see them even if we could see them. You know, whenever they show, like you'll be watching some, speaking of documentaries, you'll be watching some behind-the-scenes documentary about an animated movie, and it'll show a voice actor. Sometimes it's a famous actor who's just doing a voice, like Robin Williams. Uh, but uh, what's he up to, by the way? No, but uh, you'll you'll see something like that, and the way they're gesticulating, and I totally understand why they do it. I'm doing it right now, not to get too. Uh, you know, I know I know we were talking about all kinds of things earlier, uh, but you know, I do I do do a lot of gesticulating while I do this show. Right now, I'm in my kitchen, moving my hands, probably not unlike a voice actor. And here I am criticizing voice actors for doing the very thing I'm doing right now. But you'll see that in old uh, documentaries, old, not even old. I mean, just anything that's behind the scenes about an animated movie. You'll see the voice actors gesticulating and making all these faces. And something about that always bothered me. Even though I I understand it, you know, because I understand it because I'm doing it right now, but I understand how that helps them bring those voices, bring those mannerisms. It helps give them a certain inflection. I totally understand why that is, but there was something very perverse to me about that footage of these voice actors moving their hands and their faces and, and, oh, he's now he's doing Scar from The Lion King, so his face looks all evil. And uh, I, can't, I'm trying, I was trying to think of how Scar sounds. I haven't, I, believe it or not, I haven't perfected my Scar from The Lion King voice. That's your normal voice. You know what? You sound like Scar from The Lion King all the time, and that's why I never trusted you, even when you married my sister. 
You sound like Scar from The Lion King all the time. My brother-in-law... My brother-in-law Randy sounds like Scar from The Lion King. Uh, I realized as I was saying that I'm like, somebody's going to think I'm talking about my real brother-in-law who couldn't be further. <laughs> he couldn't be. My brother-in-law, my real brother-in-law, he couldn't be further from Scar from The Lion King. Like there's not a human being on earth who could be more different than Scar from The Lion King than my brother-in-law. And that's actually what I said at their wedding. I stood up and I said, I, I just got to give a speech. I'm trying, I'm doing this thing. You guys may have heard of it. Some of you guys got your, some of you wear a Fitbit. Some of you are, are uh, trying to eat less carbs. Me, I'm trying to do something dramatic every day. And I thought this would be a great opportunity. And here's what I'll say. I want to propose a toast. You're marrying my sister. God bless ye. God bless ye. And I just want to say, there is no man, there's no man who is less like Scar from The Lion King. You know who Scar? You know Scar? <laughs> you know Scar? <laughs> you know Scar? <laughs> uh, no, that'd be a good speech. I couldn't just find some off-base comparison. Uh, like my friend Miles was telling me, uh, we were joking. This actually came up. We were, we were joking about, um, or I was joking about people having themed weddings, like Star Wars weddings. And it turns out he had made a joke to his girlfriend recently before that, where he he said, you know, having a Grinch themed wedding. I mean, I wouldn't possibly be able to, wouldn't possibly be able to give the delivery that he gave when he told me about it. But he was saying, yeah, you know how like it's accepted for people to have Star Wars theme weddings. Oh, we're, ha we're having a Game of Thrones wedding, whatever it is people do. Having a, <laughs> a the Grinch stole Christmas wedding would be absolutely great. <laughs> um, something just it goes completely against what people expect. That's what you have to do. Go against, go completely against what people would expect. Have that Grinch-themed wedding. Give that toast. Toast the groom by saying there's nobody further than Scar from The Lion King. And I, here I am back in that territory that I hate to be in, which is making references from childhood, which is just too... It just I, I end up going there. I mean, uh, I don't know. You know, there's just a territory that I don't get very comfortable being in. Like, I don't let... It's not that... No, I, I'm... What I, what I should say is that's a territory that I'm very comfortable being in. And I go to it all the time in my own life when I'm talking to friends. Like, going with the references to childhood things, movies that came out pre-2000. You know, I just... I end up doing that. Those are the references that are burned into my head. And I stop paying attention to so many things after that. Not that I'm too cool for them. I'm actually not cool enough. I'm not cool enough for the things that came out after 2005. I'm not cool enough for those things. I'm not dramatic enough. I haven't proven myself. I haven't, I haven't yet proven how dramatic I can be. How theatric I can make uh, not just my life, but the lives of everybody I know. 
I haven't bullied enough people to be cool enough to uh, to like things that came out after a certain point in time. But I so it's very easy for me to get stuck on like references that are from the first 18 years of my life or 10 years for that matter. It's very easy for me to use those. But every time I do, I feel kind of like a a pain. I feel like a pain in my side because I'm just like, you know, I, I hate to rely. I hate to like force things into any set of parameters where it's like, oh, you have to be between the ages of 30 and 36 to get this reference. You have to be between the ages of 32 and 33 to get this one. It just feels that way if I reference something from the 90s or the 80s. Like there was this, uh, let me tell you a story. There was this, uh, this this girl when I was growing up and her name was Britney Spears. She was the finest singer in the whole land and we would all gather at night to watch her perform on the TV and... Um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, that's how I feel. That's how I feel when I make references to celebrities, to movies, to anything, any cultural reference from a certain earlier period of time. I mean, that's just my own neuroses. That's just, and even just trying to explain this, it's just my own neurosis. Neurosis or neuroses? I believe I have many neuroses. So, and they all congeal together. So... If there's any single neurosis, it's a part of the neuroses. So calling any single one neurosis a neurosis is the same thing anyway. It's the same thing anyway. Everything's the news. Everything is the news, which is the truth. And that's why, you know, social meteor, you know, meteor is not such a bad name for social meteor. Because it is media. I mean, of course, media in its most general use, you know, medium. Mixed media. Oh, does mixed media mean mixed news? Are you mixed? You made this thing with mixed news? Which is actually pretty common. You think about how much mixed media uses newspapers or used to. This is a collage of newspapers and magazines. It's called mixed media and it was made using mixed media. But uh, you think about that term social media and how it has become a news outlet where it's it's where a lot of people get their news. Not that the articles or stories necessarily start there, although now they do in many cases. But it's also just where you're going to see the articles. It's where you're going to hear about it. It's where you're going to first see the headline. So it's fitting... You know, and maybe I'm a little off base when I say that everybody's a little politician and that social media has contributed to people being these little politicians because they're also little journalists. People have turned into these little journalists and they feel and they're treated this way, too. I mean, some of the censorship that's been going on definitely falls into this discussion, but you feel like you have to get it right. I have to get it my I have to get the right take on here. Like you say things online in the same way you would if you were I mean you you give it the same kind of consideration maybe. I mean a lot of people just throw shit out and they don't care including journalists especially now. But it's like in theory you have to give it the same consideration you would give uh 
publishing something. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it's considered publishing. Sometimes they say, click publish. Click the publish button to publish this statement. And, and in the same way, people are these little politicians who, who make these political declarations. People act like they are agents of the media themselves. And they behave like little journalists. They, they're the one giving you the scoop. Oh, yeah, this, this guy, he's got all the scoops. My friend, oh yeah, my friend from college, uh, we call him Scoops because he's got a, he's got all the hot news stories. He'll link you to him. He'll he'll really he'll link them. He'll link you to him. Yeah, we call him Link. He'll link you to all the headlines. He's a, he's what we call in French. They call them little journalists. I hear in France that they call people like him little journalists. Yeah, stupid, stupid joke. Um, I'm a well, I, just like I would consider myself a little pundit. I am a little pundit. I'm very small. I am a very small person. I have a very small show. I have a very small I'm a, I'm a little pundit. All my friends they that's what they, oh you mean the little pundit? Oh yeah, I know him. The little pundit. Guy he used to yeah, I think his name's Eric, the little pundit. Oh, he, is that that guy who thinks that all news coverage should be a bare bones documentary? Yeah, that's the little pundit, all right. That's our friend, the little pundit. He's the guy who thinks that the news should just be a bare bones documentary. And he he says that he says the news should be like some old documentary he saw about interracial relationships among high school students in 1980. <laughs> hey, I, you know, I'd go for that. That sounds a lot better than what we've got now. Sometimes you just got to, it's got to be relative. It's never going to be perfect. It's got to be relative. So you look at, hey, what's, what's better than what we have now? Does the news need to be more polished? Do these people need to talk more? You look at what they're doing now. Do they need to look more artificial? Do they need more makeup? Do they need more dye in their hair? Do they, what do they need? What, what do these people need? What's going to make these people better? Is it giving them more of what they already have or what they're already doing? No, of course not. I mean, the reason these people are in the toilet anyway is because we've already, they've already been replaced. They just have so much money, so much infrastructure keeping them where they're at right now that they're like a, you know, it's like, it's like a body that's just, it's, it's like a turkey with its head cut off. That's what it is. It's like a body with its head cut off. No, it's like a turkey with its head cut off running around still like that's when I see the news when I think about mainstream journalism today I think of it as a turkey with its head cut off its head was cut off years ago and they, they've been trying to tell us that it's not meanwhile we see it because they're like look my body's still moving look at this I got such a great body that turkey thinks he has such a great body 
but that's what it that's what it feels like to watch it. That's what it feels like to see it. And then we see what's actually being transmitted when we actually have a documentary available, which is the internet. You know, with the way that f- the videos get uploaded instantly, live streaming. I mean, you're watching a documentary with minimal narration, but, you know, when the riots were going on, I watched some of those, and uh, it was fascinating. I mean, I had to pause for moments here and there and think, I'm seeing live footage transmitted by a citizen of violent unrest. That's pretty amazing. And I don't need the... You know, and I mean, that's, a, you know, a little, it's, we got a little news cameraman here, a little news camera woman live streaming. But, you know, we certainly didn't need the news networks for that. And you could see what you needed to see and make your own judgments based on what you were seeing. So we have, we, we have the thing that achieves what I want. You know, we have all of the systems in place, maybe not the systems, we have all of the tools we have all of the components, and uh, that's why there's been such a, a rise in censorship, because we have all of the components to have exactly what I'm talking about, something that is simply shown to you rather than explained, something where the only talk is pure description, and you can make a judgment based on what you see. And it's not a surprise that mainstream outlets have fought tooth and nail against that. They don't show the whole videos. Sometimes they don't even show any videos, when, even when they have them. And they discuss them, they analyze them, they twist them. And, uh, you know, but we have all the tools. And, I mean, it's the catch-22 of all this. You know, and it it shouldn't be a surprise that I'm ambivalent about this. But the fact that on one hand, people capture video of each other without the consent of those people. And in some cases, ruin somebody's life over something relatively minor, over some Karen video. Oh, here's a woman who had a meltdown today and I filmed her and shared it with millions of people and ruined her life. But I'm the good person. You know, that's the horrible side of it. Oh, hey, I have my cell phone camera. I took a picture of this white trash piece of garbage. Oh, they're in Walmart. I'm in Walmart just uh, as sort of a, a fun exercise in, in uh, oh, I'm, I'm in Walmart to have fun and look at people. I'm here to people watch. Oh, look at this person who this is all they can afford and they, you know, live in dire straits. You know, let me take a picture of them and post it online. You know, that's the bad, that's the worst side of that. But then the good side is, oh, hey, here's somebody doing something bad that affects other people. And let me capture that. Let me, I'm going to take video. I'm going to take a photo. I'm going to capture them doing that thing so that they can be held accountable. That's a great thing. You know, it's, I mean, it's the same thing for surveillance cameras on stoplights. Like when you think about, oh, you know, hey, uh, a surveillance camera on a stoplight has footage of me picking my nose and it didn't ask me for my consent. I feel that that's absolutely invasive. 
And then you hear, oh, a, a child predator was intercepted at the border with the child he had abducted. And they were able to track the car through, you know, stoplight surveillance cameras. You hear that and it's like, well, God bless surveillance cameras. So, I mean, these things, they're catch-22s by nature. And you should feel ambivalent about them by nature. And you do have to weigh, like, you know, the bad side, which I think it's a little... Honestly, I think it's worse. You know, I was talking about how we've just readily accepted surveillance because we, the people, are the ones doing it to each other now. Like, we were so worried in 2006 that, oh, the government's going to spy on us. And then it turns out we spy on each other far more than the government could ever hope to do. We just do it. We're fascinated by each other. We hold each other in contempt. We're obsessed with each other. Can't stop thinking about other people. And so give people phones with cameras and video capability. And what are they going to focus some of that on? You know, yeah, they're going to take pictures of their pets. They're going to take pictures of the sunset. They're going to do all that stuff. But what are they really going to end up using it for? You know, people looking at people looking at people. At some point, the judgment comes in. At some point, the humiliation comes in. Which is why, you know, just people being allowed to just take photos and videos of each other in any circumstance and share that is bad. But then... It's, it's like with the stoplight picking up a pedophile who had abducted a kid on the camera and that leads to their capture. It's like, well, yeah, that's kind of great. You know, there's a great side of that. Oh, hey, you know, uh, I was able to film police brutality because I had a phone in my pocket and I was able to share it with the world instantly so that a miscarriage of justice would be you know, so that people would recognize that a miscarriage of justice happened and someone will hopefully be held accountable. You know, it's like there is a good side to having that same device that you could use to humiliate people, to basically spy on people, but you can also use it to hold people accountable to capture evidence of something wrong or bad, you know, so it's, there's always ambivalence in that. But, you know, I've, and I'm, a proponent of the people seizing the means of production in terms of entertainment. Like, I'm not a commie. I am not a commie who believes in seizing the means of production, you know, like, uh, oh, we need to have state-controlled industry. No, you know, uh, oh, yeah, the state represents the people, but the state owns everything because the people, in theory, own the state. Uh, yeah, things like that don't tend to work out. Oh yeah, no, no leadership forms, no, no elite forms that then takes over the state and works against the people. But anyway, um, with uh, with that idea of seizing the means of production. You know, it's great that people can get famous now without using Hollywood, without having to follow the entertainment industry. You know, the the fact that somebody could make as much money as 
a movie star and that the term movie star even seems like kind of an old-timey antiquated term oh a movie star oh he's a movie star you know who says that anymore who calls people movie stars he's a rock star I feel like all those terms have kind of gone away. Porn star is still around, which is really funny, just real quick. Uh, I think about that sometimes when I hear people say porn star, because it used to mean somebody like, I mean, Jenna Jameson, somebody who actually is a star, somebody who, who actually has made a name for themselves in that industry. But at some point, we just started to use porn star for anybody who's worked in porn. Like somebody's done one amateur video that was available only online and suddenly they're a porn star. It's just funny to me how we're willing to use that. Cause I mean, you don't, nobody uses that to describe like, like nobody talks about somebody who isn't a famous rock and roll musician and calls them a rock star. You know, nobody really uses it that way. Maybe they use it in a way like maybe there's some guy who's in a local band He's in some bar rock band, and he he really he gives it his all. Like, maybe there's somebody who's like, that guy's such a rock star, but they don't mean that's actually what he is. You know, like, like people have used rock star in this really disgusting way for years. Dude, you're a rock star, dude. Like if I was a if I was a photographer, if I was a professional photographer and I was taking school portraits or family portraits, I would be like, hey, hey, little buddy, like like somebody wants their kid to get his his professional photo taken. I'd be like, what's up, little man? Dude, yeah, just like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, put your uh, you put your hand over here. Put your hand under your elbow. Oh, yeah. Just like that, dude. Oh, dude, you're such a rock star. Good job, dude. You're, you're a rock star, kid. Uh, you know, that word is just, dis- I mean, it's, it's obvious. Again, it's another one of those obvious things. But that casual use of the word rock star was a really disgusting development some years back. I mean, I, this is even going back. I mean, I feel like I've, it definitely became very common, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, probably. And yeah, that casual just oh, that's a that was a bad one that you would hear. But when someone says that somebody is a rock star, when it's not that sort of patronizing, like dude, you're a rock star, uh, it's kind of like the same thing when people be like, "What's up, player?" Like these random losers like saying that to each other. It's like the same sort of thing, just like "What's up, pimp." Nobody here is even close to a pimp. Nobody here is even close to a rock star. What's up, pimp rock star? I don't know. Low hanging, the low hanging, you know what, yet again. Although I shouldn't be ashamed of that. You know, I shouldn't be ashamed. I should say you're such a, just to finish that thought, like I I should say to people, oh, dude, you're such a porn star. (laughs) <laughs> like in the same way people throw out rock star because like i'm saying like people will talk about somebody who did make porn but they made like two amateur videos on Pornhub or something and it's like dude did you know that like mike's cousin sandy's sister 
which I guess would make her also his cousin. Uh, did you know that she's a porn star? You're like, really? What's her name? I'm trying to think of a porn star name. Mandy Wallace. And then you find out she made two videos. Like, she's not a porn star, okay? And do you want to be that guy? Which is me, apparently. But do you want to be that guy who, like, somebody tells you that so-and-so's cousin is a porn star, and your response is like, I looked it up, and she's not a porn star, dude. But you wouldn't do that about music. Like, if you found out that someone's cousin, you know, was a singer-songwriter who played in coffee houses... You know, you're not going to tell somebody about that and be like, dude, Mike's cousin, dude, he's a rock star. He plays Elliot Smith covers in coffee houses. Dude, he's such a rock star. He's actually a rock star. But you would do that about porn. Like you would do that with the same equivalent in porn. Because doing like amateur videos for, you know, you upload to Pornhub is like pretty much on the same level as playing in a coffee house. It's like an open mic night. But yet people was, will say like so-and-so, you, you, from the sound of this, you think I'm being told about porn stars all the time, but you do hear that. I did actually go to a party once where, or no, it was my girlfriend had, had been at a party and then she met up with me later that night and she was like, oh yeah, there was a porn star at the party, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, who, who? <laughs> and it, yeah, it turned out to be, you know, just somebody, you know, just some, just some woman, somebody who does something. Uh, we all know what she does, but you know, it's definitely not a star, but for whatever reason, if you do porn at all, maybe it's extreme enough, you know, maybe porn is explicit enough to where simply crossing that gate, crossing that threshold, maybe that kind of makes you a star in a way. It's like the fact that they do the thing that they do kind of gives them a little extra something. Whereas there's nothing controversial or shocking when you find out that somebody's cousin is a singer, is an aspiring singer songwriter who plays coffee house. It's like, you don't go, whoa, really? Really, dude? Tell me more. Tell me more. You know, you don't think that way. Whereas, you know, when you, when you hear somebody knows a porn star, or they know somebody who's worked in porn, you, you go, you know, I'll, I'll listen to this. Even if you're not lecherous about it, even if you're not disgusting about it, you know, you go, okay, I'll listen to this. I'll remember this forever. <laughs> I'll, re you know, I'm, I'll remember this. I'll remember that that person did that. Uh, I remember hearing when I was in college, a friend of mine telling me, oh, you know, this girl so-and-so does porn in her dorm. And I don't think that this was, you know, like, I don't think that this was hardcore porn. I think that she maybe did nude modeling, which, you know, is that really porn? I don't know. Uh, but she did nude modeling. And it was interesting, too, because she was a black girl who wore Melvin's shirts, you know, the band The Melvins. I had a class with her, beautiful girl. And she, uh, I remember, like, being surprised. You know, you don't see black girls wearing Melvin's shirts very often. If you feel that that's a controversial statement, you know, again, this isn't the show for you. Uh, but, uh, you know, just it wasn't an everyday sight. And I remember her wearing other grunge shirts as well. Like, I think she was into the Melvins from a grunge angle. 
you know, like she got into them maybe through grunge, but, uh, you know, it stood out to me. And then I found out she did porn in her dorm, dorm porn. Maybe she wore like shredded grunge shirts. I don't know. She would have been kind of ahead of her time because grunge wasn't that cool. This is probably like 2005 and grunge wasn't that cool then. You know, it was kind of in between. Like, you know, of course, grunge was always popular. Of course, Nirvana is always popular. But as I've talked about on here before, like the ebb and the flow where it takes like 10 years because that mid 2000s, we were still, I think, mostly in the old cycle where something has to be gone for a solid 10 years for it to appeal to young people again. Like in 1998, you were sick of grunge. You know, in the year 2000, 2001, people were sick of grunge. But then around 2005, 2006, this might have been 2006. I don't I know that it doesn't matter, but I like to get these things right. You know, it's probably around 2006, maybe that I heard about this girl. And she was into grunge and, you know, it, it was it was interesting. You know, it was just it was just interesting. And uh, but that's how long things take. You know, you figure like grunge was on the way out by 1995. I don't know. I don't, I'm not a historian. I'm not a grunge. Hey, welcome to every night's a school night where you're with the main grunge historian. I'm the, I'm the world's foremost grunge historian, but you figure, you know, it gets to, uh, you know, a solid 10 years and then people start to say, Hey, you know, I kind of missed that thing. Hey, there was something kind of cool about that. And I say this girl was ahead of her time because there was nobody at my college walking around in, in grunge shirts. There was nobody like there were people in Melvin shirts, but they had gotten into the Melvins through doom metal or something. They'd gotten into the Melvins through Mike Patton, something like that. You know, they, they weren't people who had just organically found the Melvins because they liked Nirvana like people did in the early 90s. But I could tell this girl was coming from that angle. And uh, good for her, you know, because she was she was riding the wave when people weren't because, yeah, by about 2000, I mean, it's only been. uh, I don't know, I mean, it took a while, like I said, like the cycles of these things, like the cycles of nostalgia and all that have gotten really messed up, Uh, you know, just like other aspects of nature have, have, have started escalating, you know, like the eschaton has, you know, escalated in some people's minds cultural changes have escalated too and like our system of revisiting the past and deciding that it was actually cool and you know oh bell bottoms they look so stupid give it 20 years give it 15 years and suddenly a bunch of young people that happened in the 90s uh you know there was a period in the 90s where suddenly oh hey girls pants are flaring out you know people weren't wearing huge bell bottoms they weren't, you know, redoing the 70s, but there were people who, who were like, hey, you know what? How about those bell bottoms that we all got rid of? How about those bell bottoms? <laughs> How about those bell bottoms? Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's like that where it just it took it took a certain amount of time and then we started to see it again. And it happens with things that seem absurd to us. You know, and, and that's what I'm getting at here with the grunge thing is that there are people who have been, I mean, I went to see the band Earth 
in it must have been 2003 or 2004 in Seattle. I was still living in the Seattle area, and I saw the band Earth, you know, which is of course connected to grunge but not grunge. And uh, there was a kid there who he had a he was probably my age, maybe give or take a year. I was probably 17, so he's let's say he's between 16 and 18. He looked like he was between 16 and 18. If I had a if if I if we had smartphones back then, I would have taken a picture of his face without his consent. I would have I would have taken video of him. I would I would have said, "Look at this idiot. He's got a flannel shirt tied around his waist. He's got, you know, long uncared for hair, scraggly hair, and he was wearing a mud honey shirt." So there's this kid, you know, in 2004, 2003, flannel shirt tied around his waist in Seattle, wearing a mud honey shirt with long hair, going to see Earth. Good for him. No, I'm not, I'm not talking shit about somebody who's like doing their grunge thing. Uh, just the point is, is that uh, what is the point? <laughs> the point is... The point is, what's the point, you guys? The point, the point, <laughs> the point of all this actually is, what is the point? Because everything I'm talking about right now seems to be just like a, a nihilist tornado. <laughs> like there's kids recreating grunge in 2003, but the cycle of nostalgia isn't going to bring grunge back until 2017, when Instagram girls start wearing backwards hats. And flannel shirts with big baggy nightshirt-sized screaming tree shirts. Because that—that's what I was getting to—is that in recent years there has been this new. I mean, everything is blown out. Everything was blown to smithereens culturally. Culture was blown to smithereens, and uh, as a result, though, it's like you do see a lot of things happening at once. Like right now in the last, say five, let's say the last five years, you've seen like 21 year old Zomer girls who become influencers on Instagram. And they, they're going for this sort of like, I don't even know. I mean, you, you wouldn't call it grunge, but it's all grunge informed. It's almost like I, it's like they're treating grunge ironically. You know, in the same way that people would ironically listen to hair metal or 80s rock before that became cool again. It's almost like these 20-year-old girls were listening to grunge ironically, which if you're going to listen to it, that I, I recommend listen to grunge ironically. I'm not a grunge fan. I mean, I'm also not, I, I have no beef with it, but uh, I'm not a fan. And, uh, but these girls, they seem to, it seems to be kind of ironic because, you know, for those girls, when they were born, it's not just girls, but it's a trend I've seen among these kind of influencer-type girls. Uh, it's this sort of, like, laughing about grunge. <laughs> and I, and I, I put that in quotes, because that's going to be another School Night News Network slogan. Laughing about grunge. Like, imagine that in... Imagine, like, a picture of a beautiful girl in an old backwards cap with a flannel shirt tied around her waist and like a baggy new Nirvana shirt. Like it's a boutique like uniquely screen printed Nirvana art shirt. And she's posing 
And there's a quote in script lettering in quotations. It says laughing about grunge. That's what that vibe is. Laughing about grunge. Uh, and so there's a sort of irony to it. And it's you see it now, too, with new metal, which that was one that I've always wondered, is that going to come back? You know, is that one that is going to come back somehow? And, uh, you know, it, it is a little bit. With that same sort of, I, you know, it's laughing about new metal. It's a series. Laughing about grunge and then laughing about new metal. Where it took long enough, but... Because it's, it's usually not the people who did the thing for, to begin with. It's like in the 90s when you started to see teenagers wear flared pants and these kind of jean bell-bottoms. It wasn't their parents who had worn bell-bottoms in the 70s suddenly deciding that bell-bottoms were cool again. It was their children. It was those people's children being like, oh, hey, here's this thing from the past that we thought was really stupid. Like my parents look like clowns in photos of them from the 70s. Like why would you walk around with your pants flaring out. You know, why would you look like that? And then sure enough, you know, a few years later, it's like they start to incorporate that in their own way into the fashion. They revisit it. And that go, that went along with, you know, people getting back into their parents' music, seventies music. And uh, with, uh, you know, so so again, with like the grunge thing, it's like the, the sort of people who are going through this like laughing about grunge aesthetic, those same people didn't go through it to begin with. They might have even been born in 1996, you know, they might even have been born in 1998. You know, they might have been born after Kirk Cobain died. Uh, Kirk, Kirk Corbrain. And I actually know a guy in town, I like him. He's not a friend, but he's a guy that I always, he always makes effort to say hi to me. I always say hi to him. A genuinely good guy. And he runs a small record label stuff that I, you know, isn't for me. Uh, but he also makes a bunch of clothing and he, he's been making these grunge bootlegs. And he'll make like jerseys, like a, like it's like a San Jose Sharks jersey but instead it has like it says Nirvana on the front and Cobain 00 on the back it's it's pretty funny you know i mean I, like i saw that that jersey and i was like oh that's pretty funny uh it's a Kurt Cobain jersey you know that's a funny statement and he's he's been making some other bootleg grunge shirts and merchandise for a while and it's exactly what i'm talking about though it's like i'm not saying this guy i you know it's not like this is some huge trend but it's exactly what i'm talking about with these sort of instagram influencer girls where there's been this little movement, and I don't pay attention to that many things. So if I'm aware of this, a lot more people are probably aware of it. But with like Instagram girls doing this sort of like laughing about Nirvana thing, and then this guy that I know who's my age, you know, he's like mid 30s, uh, the fact that he's doing merchant, he's doing bootleg Nirvana jerseys and like whole shirts. And uh, he did an Alice in Chains something or another. You know, he's making like, it's like making like a starter jacket with a grunge band's logo on it. Like, that's kind of what he's riffing on. I don't, I don't think he's done that, but it's like he's kind of doing that. He's making this like custom streetwear 
that is grunge-themed, and again, laughing about grunge. But it's not because they think grunge is really stupid. It's not that they hate grunge. It's just this, it's so detached. It's sort of like the direction humor went the last, you know, 10 years, where there was a point where, like, I I always kind of, you know, I, I do keep my finger on the pulse, and there was a point where I saw the sort of, memes and web comics that younger people were looking at like actually a friend of mine who i don't know if he's a zomer you know i was saying i don't have enough zomers in my life i think he's a zomer i just don't think of him that way but uh i saw some things that he was into that were supposed to be funny and it was so detached like it was so far beyond irony that I couldn't even understand. Like, and it didn't seem to be based on like a certain point of reference. Like you have to see this TV show to get this. Oh, you have to have, you, Oh dude, you have to have watched Rick and Marty to get this joke. You know, it wasn't even like that sort of thing. It was just something that whatever path, whatever path humor had taken among like 24 year old boys was so far removed from anything that I could even pick up on. And that's humbling because it's not that I feel like I was missing out on some great joke, but I was just like, man, like I thought that I had, I thought my senses were capable of detecting anything. Like I thought that I was wired in such a way that I would always be able to pick up on what people were riffing on and seeing that and being like, this is a guy who's into the same things I'm into. You know, we play music together, you know, so this is a person who's into the same things I'm into. So we're not talking about somebody who's on the complete other side of, of the culture, you know, or anything like that. But just the fact that I couldn't even understand like what this shit he was into was it was just it was a humbling moment. And I've had many of those since then where I'm just like, I don't even know what's being riffed on here because it's so detached. I do get the grunge thing. I do understand that. I do kind of get what they're doing. And I mean, I don't think it's that interesting or anything, but like the guy's jersey, like the guy I know, like the jersey that he printed, I, th- I thought it was funny. Like a shirt that says, like a, jer- a hockey jersey that says Cobain on the back and, and a Nirvana logo on the front. Like that is, and, it, and kind of vintage looking too. I just thought that was a funny idea. Uh, but it shows you, I mean, the, there, there has been, that's not, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. Most things are operating in some sort of space. Uh, where, uh, you know, that's not in a vacuum. Like I said, I've seen other people kind of riffing on that same idea. And then new metal is one that came up. Like I was saying, new metal was one where I just honestly, like as someone who is very, who, who is interested in what goes on culturally, even if I don't like it, I'm always interested at the direction that things head in. And I used to get more mad. I used to get more mad when I saw the direction culture was heading in. And maybe I still do sometimes, but I used to be a little more pissed off because it's like I didn't like it. I didn't like it. So I, you know, I'm going to say something. I'm going to criticize it. But, uh, you know, since then, I don't know. I've just, I've become more of a neutral observer with these things. But new metal was one where I just never, it was very difficult for me to imagine how that's going to get reintegrated into youth culture. Because it seems like new metal was kind of at the end of the road. And I think it was. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise that things just fractured after that. Not that new metal itself was important 
or unimportant. I'm not going to say new metal is unimportant. Uh, but, uh, you know, not that new metal itself caused the fracturing, but all of the different aspects of culture that were going through that funnel, there's, there wasn't a lot more you could do. You know, it's why we saw such a turn away from the sort of stories that were being told back to more classic good and evil hero villain sort of stories. I mean, the most obvious example of that is just the prevalence of anti-hero stories in the 90s and first half of the 2000s. Maybe maybe most of the 2000s, because most of the 2000s was still getting the backwash of the mid to late 90s. And, uh, but the, you know, anti-hero stories were so popular. You could have, you know, Hey, the crow spawn. These are comic books, you know, these are comic books and those guys are heroes, but they're anti-heroes. And a lot of stories ended up being that way. Like you even think about the matrix or something like that, where, yeah, he's a good guy. That character, you know, the, the main character, his name's the matrix, Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves as the Matrix, but, uh, you know, even that, just that sort of style, that sort of trench coat mafia chic, as I call it. He's dressed in trench coat mafia chic. Uh, it's, it's that sort of look, like sunglasses, a leather jacket, black. He's a good guy, but he wears all black. <laughs> that reminds me, uh, maybe I've told it on here, but, you know, I was mentioning my friend Miles earlier. He's a he's a recurring character on here because uh, I would love to have him on, but we just haven't done it. Uh, but he he told me a story years ago, and I, I it's one of those stories that you know. There's some stories that your friends have, and you almost ask them to retell it to you every few years because you don't get sick of it. And there's one where he was in some sort of creative writing class when he was in high school, and the teacher had written a short story or a poem or something. Was, I think it was a short story. This is the teacher, and it was a guy. And so this teacher had written this short story, and it involved a kid. It involved a teenager. And he was trying to capture a stere- what he thought a stereotypical teenager was, an angsty teenager. And the line in the story went, he wore all black, and he hadn't smiled since the last Fish concert. <laughs> That, that was the line. This is my this is my friend Miles in his creative writing class in high school. The teacher so, described this angsty teenager. All he wore all black and hadn't smiled since the last fish concert. So that's so perfect. That is so perfectly wrong. Like if I had to create a teacher who was out of touch, like like that itself is creative writing. That itself is creative writing to think of like if I were trying to come up with a teacher for a TV show. And I was like, okay, uh, he's got to be out of touch. He's got to be kind of like, he thinks he's engaging with the kids on their level, but he can't be too good at it and he can't be too bad either, but he's got to be just perfectly wrong. And for him to think that like a kid who wears all black, like some kind of goth kid is a fish fan, which of course that exists. Of course, you know that there's some, there was some goth kid in a high school who was a fish fan. Of course there was. But just the, his idea of an angsty teenager who wears all black would get their kicks through fish, P-H-I-S-H, you know. Too funny. 
Like it's so perfectly wrong. I, I just love it. But yeah, just saying the thing about black wearing black, like matrix chic. Uh, not matrix, not even matrix chic. Trench coat mafia chic is the term. Trench coat mafia chic. We call it trench coat mafia chic. It's what we call trench coat mafia chic. But that sort of aesthetic was big in the 90s, towards the late 90s. By 1999, that was firmly established. But it had been for a few years. Like, I'm talking about The Crow, popular, I think, 1994 movie about an anti-hero. Spawn, very similar to The Crow in a lot of ways. Once again, the anti-hero, the reluctant hero who had maybe sinned in life and was sent back from the dead to live out this sort of purgatory. Meanwhile, he's in pain. He looks kind of like a bad guy, but he does good things because he is a hero after all. And then at some point that people were like, you know, we're kind of sick of this. And it was widely popular in comics. There were a million more comic books that followed that sort of routine, the anti-hero routine. And it was popular in all sorts of other avenues. I'm just not thinking of like you started to see it come into TV. You know, it became cooler to be a badass because I mean, thinking about myself, like when I would look back at, say, Captain America, I would be like, he's stupid. Like, how could I possibly be a fan of, of a character who looks like that? Like, Captain America looks stupid. And meanwhile, you have Spawn, where it's like, this guy looks cool. You know, this guy, he's got spikes, he's got, you know, he looks menacing, but he's also cool, and he's good. And so what are you going to choose? You know, you're going to choose Spawn, maybe. I mean, there's plenty of people who are fans of Spawn and Captain America. But it was just, you know, it was just one of those things where... At the, at the time I came of age, at the time I grew up, I think maybe it would be a better way to put it, the time I grew up, the ways that heroism had been portrayed, the sort of classic heroism, was just old. It was just like, you know, we've gotten such a heavy dose of that, it's not interesting. So it was like, what about these guys who aren't bad guys, but they're not completely good and they're conflicted? And then... That became popular because of kids like me who were looking for that. And then that became everything, became every story. Every story is about gray areas. Everything exists in this neutral gray area. And then what do people want? People are like, you know what? I wouldn't mind a Marvel movie. I've been watching all of these gloomy anti-hero movies. Every character on TV, every character in movies, every character in books these days is a gloomy anti-hero. Bring me the guy in the red, white, and blue outfit. Bring me the guy in red and yellow. You know, that's kind of where people went, and then those movies boomed. They've been booming. And, uh, you know, I I don't know what led to that. You know, I don't, you know... I don't know if this has always been the case. I don't know if we've always kind of cycled between anti-heroes and heroes, but I know that people got kind of sick of the anti-hero thing and started gravitating much more toward the classics and relative classics too. Because, you know, of course, I'm not talking about, you know, Robin Hood or Odysseus or something here. You know, I'm talking about 
characters that were created in what, like the 1940s, 1950s, but modern classics. Because like when you think about what a classic superhero is, you're going to think of characters that look like Superman. And, you know, and the popularity of Batman, the way that, you know, when Batman went from wearing blue and gray to wearing all black, that was sort of the bridge to the anti-hero. Because Batman is not an anti-hero. Batman is a, he's kind of a pseudo anti-hero. Because he is dark. People think he's a bad guy when he shows up in stories. You know, he has all the markings of an anti-hero. He looks like one. He kind of acts like one in some ways. Uh, but he's really not. You know, he he really isn't one. Uh, and But he sort of bridged the gap. You know, you think about those dark Batman movies were really popular in uh, the late 80s, early 90s. And that was right before the full-on anti-hero craze started. Like, immediately. It's like people got comfortable with the idea of a darker superhero. They got comfortable with that idea that he's he himself wears dark, kind of villainous-looking clothes. And the movie itself is set at night in this sort of stylized, dark Gotham. And uh, that sort of bridged the gap to... Oh, here's a guy who's who's even more ambiguous. Oh, here's a guy. He went to hell and got sent back to Earth. And now he's living with the fact that he was a piece of shit when he was alive. And now he's, uh, you know, some weird superhuman freak. And he's got to reconcile who he was with who he is now while trying to do the right thing and stay one step ahead of hell. You know, you can understand that you can only get so much of that before you're like, bring back the guy with the S on his chest who is just wholly good and he doesn't ask any deep questions. You know, just bring that guy back. So not surprising entirely that Marvel got really big in the wake of all that stuff. And it's just like cars or anything, too. It's like you get so much of something or it's just like fashion, like talking about bell bottoms. You know, it's like we need, a, you know, a certain amount of distance. It's why the car industry really has, why the, the motor vehicle industry has it made in many ways in terms of design. Because all you have to do is every 10 years, you come up with a new design that is kind of rounded. It's got rounded corners. And then you just slightly tweak that for the next 10 years. And then once that 10 years is up, you make it boxy. And people go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Look at this design. You know, people get really excited. Uh, Think about, like, the Jeep Cherokee. Like, remember the Jeep Cherokees were always very boxy, rectangular. And then uh, at some point they came out the rounded ones. And, uh, they, they, you know, it was very... The edges were very rounded and elongated. And people were like, whoa, whoa. And it was very cool to people. And then, I don't know if they've changed it since. You know, and somebody who actually pays attention to car designs could probably shoot all this down and be like, they don't change from round to square every 10 years. You know, somebody could easily shoot this down. But it is something we've seen. Like, I've seen it. And this this is as anecdotal as you can get. 
Like, if you want to know what an anecdote is, it's me telling you about how the car industry changes its designs every 10 years. This is me just, like, peripherally paying attention to cars a little bit. So it might entirely be wrong. But I have noticed it where whenever a car comes out with some bold new design, usually it's just, oh, they took something that was squared off and made it rounded. And then 10 years later, some indeterminate amount of time later, dude, did you see the new design? It's like, it's it's retro. It's like you keep going back and forth between those things in the same way that I feel like the story of heroes, you know, I've seen it in my lifetime go from, oh, we want the traditional bright color hero to, yeah, but have you heard of uh, existentialism and trench coat mafia chic you know then you go into that for a little while and you get sick of that and then it's like well you know what the spandex and bright colors you know i kind of miss that i kind of miss just i kind of miss the days where heroes were just simple guys who did good things really well and then you have a dose of that for a while and then it's back to yeah but have you ever thought about like a hero who just sits around thinking about life and death and doesn't want to act, but then something forces itself upon him and he has to, you know, it's just, it's just that you just get sick of one and then you go toward the other, you know, it's like, uh, I was married to a blonde for 20 years. And then I, uh, yeah, I was noticing that I, I kind of, I, I was starting to get a hot nut for the, for the brunettes. And so I divorced my first wife cause I, I don't believe in, in, uh, extramarital affairs I divorced my first wife and I married a brunette and then I I was married to her for 20 years and then I started to think you know maybe uh maybe it's actually blonde I kind of miss blondes and then I so I divorced her and I married a blonde and then we were married for 20 years and I divorced her and then I married another brunette and then I was 120 years old and I've been married 20 times Some people probably do that. Somebody's done that. Somebody's bounced between blonde and brunette wives. No, yeah, obviously I'm exaggerating. Obviously this isn't total, this isn't not an exact science of like people get older one thing and then they get interested in the, another thing. Then they get older that thing and then they get interested in a version, a variation of the old thing again. But it does happen and you can see that trend play out. I mean, I saw it in you know music as well. Like, I remember when I was getting into death metal, technical death metal was extremely popular. Tech death. You heard of tech decks? Well, we we play tech death. But yeah, tech death was very popular, which meant like a lot of notes, not particularly melodic, a lot of notes crammed in, very high speed, you know, dissonance, a lot of uh, odd timing. And so, you know, death metal, the trend at that point in time, the thing that was cool, of course, there's always people who like different things, but what was raging, the fire that was burning brightest at that time was very much technical death metal. And uh, then a few years later, people got sick of that. Like people got very sick of it. And then you could see where suddenly people were revisiting, you know, late 80s Swedish death metal demos. And they were trying to take the same sort of pictures those guys took in graveyards. You know, you can't recreate that stuff, first of all. But 
you could see where that happened, where it was like people got sick of technical death metal because it was everywhere you looked for a while. And I, I still love tech, uh, tech death. I'll always love tech death metal. I tell people to this day, like the best concert that I've ever seen, the best performance, I'll say, that I've ever seen in my life was Deeds of Flesh. I saw them play in probably 2001, 2002, and it was so good. And I'd never heard them before either. You know, I've listened to Deeds of Flesh on record since then. But uh, I, I, I was seeing another band, and Deeds of Flesh was one of the openers on the tour. And they were a three-piece. And after every single song, they just said, fuck yeah. And the crowd was losing it. And I don't think that this was a bunch of... I think a lot of people there were like me. who were They knew the name, but they had never heard Deeds of Flesh. And after every song, they Deeds of Flesh was just saying, fuck yeah. Like, you guys fucking rule. This is the best city, dude. It was just something bands say, like, oh, dude, this is the Seattle's the best city, dude. But you could, they, it was definitely like some form of like grand harmony, technical death metal, and a three piece, too. A three piece technical death metal band is cool because you think of techni- technical death metal needing two guitarists to be, to do what they do. And I mean, uh, yeah, but Deeds of Flesh, they were just brutal death metal, I guess. They'd fall into that. But they were just so, they were, it was just brutal. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. And there was a guy, a very tall guy, and I'm starting to feel like I told this story on here before, but there was a very tall guy who had bought a Deeds of Flesh shirt before their set, and he was standing at the front of the stage the entire time they played. And this guy, keep in mind, he was already very tall. I mean, this guy was like six foot eight and uh, he was just, he had his arms fully extended above him with the shirt, the deeds of flesh shirt he had bought just sort of like hanging and he was just holding their own shirt up to them the entire time they played just like static, just absorbing the performance and so you have this guy, he's extremely tall, and like you didn't mind it, though. Like Normally, if a really tall guy was standing at the front of a stage with his arms stretched out, holding a shirt, so he's like blocking a, a pretty substantial chunk of the stage, normally you would mind that. I didn't. This guy was like part of it. This guy, he was like the standard bearer. You know, you think about in an army, the standard bearer, the standard bearer who holds the banner of the army. That's what this guy was like, you know, except he was facing deeds of flesh. Like the fact that he was just holding their own shirt up to them in tribute to them. And after every song, it was just like this exhaust came out of them. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah, dude. And uh, yeah, that was just the best performance. Like I wouldn't even be able to tell you if they played their songs well. I mean, it sounded good. It sounded really good. It's not, this isn't a thing where I'm like... it wasn't even about the music. It was just about the the atmosphere. It was everything. And, you know, at some point I, I really stopped going to concerts. And so maybe maybe something else would have beat that out. But I'm comfortable with my concert days long behind me, with my show-going days long behind me. I'm comfortable resting on that as my favorite all-time show. Fuck yeah. I am very comfortable with the idea that a band that I wasn't even, you know, a fan of before that managed to do that. Um, you know, you just, you never know. You never know. It's kind of like finding, you know, a dream, your dream girl. You never know. 
you know, uh, it, she could be just like Deeds of Flesh. You never heard of her? You know, she comes in with her own standard bearer. She comes in with a six foot eight man who is not her. There, there's no relations between them. He's simply there to hold her t shirt up before you. She is your Deeds of Flesh. You never know. You never know if the girl of your dreams, you know, might be one of the opening bands, baby. She's, she's, a. she might be your deeds of flesh. It's like, uh, somebody makes a Citizen Kane movie about me instead of Rosebud, it's deeds of flesh. He keeps just, he says deeds of flesh. Uh, what is that? What does he mean? What did he mean when he said deeds of flesh? And at the end of the movie, they should, you just see a deeds of flesh CD getting thrown into the incinerator. <laughs> a live CD. I don't know if they have one. I don't, know if they, I don't know if they ever made a live album. But it's like you just see a live deeds of flesh. It's a bootleg. It's a bootleg. It's a bootleg live album of the show that I saw them play. And you just see that being thrown into the incinerator and nobody ever figures it out. We never figured out with this eccentric plutocrat. What, what did he mean when he said deeds of flesh on his deathbed? They would think it was religious. They would think it was a religious statement. But, but anyway, technical death metal, I was just talking about how the, the trend for a while was tech death. And then people were like, no, you know what? I want that rugged, primitive... Just death metal bands playing chords. Like them actually just slugging along heavy chords. I don't want to hear this mathy, you know, high pitch, just like, you know, whatever it is. You know, people got sick of the tech death sound and then they were into this primitive thing. And then I've noticed too that since then, I've noticed more and more people getting back into technical death metal. I don't pay super close attention, but I've started to see more shirts. Like I've seen people who I don't think would have been wearing suffocation shirts 10 years ago. I've seen some of them wearing a suffocation shirt here or there. Little things. You see signs. It was like with the grunge people. It was like with laughing at grunge. You know, laughing at grunge meant you started to see 20-year-old girls wearing grunge shirts and backwards hats. Hot girls. Like, like really hot girls wearing backwards hats and baggy grunge shirts. And then you started to see more of it and this and that. But uh, it's the same. You're going to see more and more girls in technical death metal shirts. There's, you're going to see a girl. There's going to be a... In, mark my words. In two years, there will be a girl, a 20-year-old girl, wearing a Deeds of Flesh jersey. And uh, she's, um, I don't know, I don't know where else to go with that, but uh, you know, maybe that'll be the next thing. Maybe that'll be the next field that people harvest is tech death. No, but I've already seen where that's kind of coming back in a way. I've already seen where people are like, well, you know what, like, uh, you know, maybe I actually did, uh, you know... Maybe I actually did like all of those notes crammed in there. Because I'm kind of sick of people just playing like primitive. Oh, it's like you sped up a Celtic Frost riff and growled over it. 
I'm kind of sick of that. I want to hear all those notes. I want to hear all them notes. This reminds me of when I was a kid. And I used to listen to Deeds of Flesh with all, those, with all those notes packed in there. I like a lot of notes. I like there to be a lot of. I like there to be a lot of notes. A lot of notes packed into that music. Here we are. It's over an hour and a half here. This is a real Saturday night episode here. Got a lot of notes packed into this episode. Speaking of that, this this entire episode is basically vocal tech. This is voc vocal tech. This is technical vocals. This is technical talking. This is tech talk. Welcome to tech talk. Because my news station will have that. School Night News Network will have a program called Tech Talk. Where we talk about technology. Where we talk about... Uh, but all the journalists, all of the, all of the people who work for us will be instructed to say as little as possible. On Tech Talk, we will simply show technology at work. We will show technology's influence. We'll just show what people are doing in their homes with technology. Because, I mean, I've always said that if anybody wants to lose all... I mean, not, it's not even about respect. If somebody wants to see me in my most disgusting and undignified moment... It's like when I'm looking at a laptop, eating, stoned, like the idea of the image of if somebody were to look, I used to have this thing at my old house because I was always afraid at my old house of people looking in on me. So I kept the, the, um, the curtains closed, but I was always worried there was going to be a little crack in the curtains and somebody was going to be peering through. And actually my ex-girlfriend used to joke that she was going to take a, like a cardboard cutout and tape it to my window so that when I opened the curtains, it would, I would just see the outline of a person looking in. I'm kind of sad she never did that. Um, but uh, I'm going to hire a, a prostitute to do that for me. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I'm not interested in your body, but I still am going to pay you some money, and here's what you're going to do. At some point in the next month... And I don't want you to tell me, please, I'm going to pay you right now. Some point in the next month, I want you to tape a cardboard cutout of a person to my window. So that when I open it, I get terrified and I have all my paranoid fears confirmed. Will you do that for me? Will you do that for me? I'll pay you $300,000. Oh, and just one more thing. Will you make sure you're wearing a Deeds of Flesh hoodie when you do it? I don't need to see it. I just want to know that you were wearing a Deeds of Flesh hoodie when you taped that. I, it's like my whole world is, is merging into one. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of the Deeds of Flesh concert I saw when I was a boy. I'm thinking about that trick that my ex-girlfriend never played on me. That would have been funny. I recognize the show's gotten probably really weird lately, but I, I wouldn't have it any... I'm glad that... I, I like the weird direction. It's it, probably it's probably no different. It's probably no different than anything else I've done. Um, but uh, 
yeah, you know, you to get back to what I was saying, just you you would have, uh, or I I would have these paranoid fears. Maybe they were fantasies, actually, but I would have these paranoid fears that there was going to be just some tiny little slit in the curtain, and that somebody was going to press their face up and be watching me in the early morning hours of my night. Like, because back then too, I used to stay up drinking, you know, smoking pot, like pacing around, doing every night to school night episodes, all kinds of things. And I was always worried, though, that like I was going to be stoned and somebody was going to be peering in watching me eat because they would be disgusting. It would be like like just my eyes. Like I was talking to Miles actually about like if you if you've ever accidentally taken photos of yourself with your computer webcam like if you've accidentally done it, so you're not posed and it's like you catch your face, like you catch a photo of what you look like when you're doing something in front of your laptop, but you don't know it's happening. So you're not posed or rehearsed in any way. And like the look in your eyes, like Miles described it as shark eyes, like dead shark eyes. And like when he said that, it just, it was so perfect. Cause that's what it is. It's like you have these hollow dead shark eyes in those moments. It's like a gritty webcam photo of yourself looking at your, your laptop. And so the idea of somebody else seeing that, like if that's what my laptop captures, like me totally dead eyed moving around my house, like a shark snacking, like, if that's what my webcam sees, the idea of somebody looking into my house and seeing that. Which is why, like, when I live with people, it's like, we have to spend... We we can't... Like, I can't be comfortable in the same space as somebody. You know, like, some people can. Like, some people can, like, just be totally comfortable snacking. <laughs> like like some people can be totally comfortable snacking in front of their significant other or their roommate. I couldn't do that because they would see I would either have to hide the dead shark eyes <laughs> or uh or they would see it. And I don't like either of those. Cuz if I am in that moment, the thing is cuz it's, it's at no point do I want to change what I'm doing. Like at no point do I not want to be that dead shark-eyed freak raiding my own pantry but I don't want to change it either I'd just rather have it not be seen but if it does get seen you know you know it's just part of the documentary it's part of the news because everything's the news including you especially you everything is the news here at school night news network and that especially means you. You are the news when you are up at 3 a.m. mindlessly reading things on a laptop. You're not even taking any of it in. Not even absorbing. You're not even reading. You're floating around. You're just you're just hovering around. And you're going to the pantry and you're eating handfuls of things. You're snacking. And your eyes, it, it's almost like your pupil is taking over your entire eyeball. You look like an animal. You look like a shark. And you're just hovering around. You're floating around your living space. That's the news.
gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take